0: Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Dr. Ron McKay, Chief of the Laboratory of Molecular Biology, National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Strokes, and Dr. Marshall Nirenberg, 1968 Nobel Prize winner in Physiology and Medicine, discuss the medical science of neurobiology. We hope you enjoy today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. I'm head of the Laboratory of Biochemical Genetics in the National Heart Institute here at the National Institutes of Health. In Bethesda, Maryland, um, I've been here since uh, 1957. I came as a postdoctoral fellow, and I've stayed here ever since. During uh, the early 60s, my uh, colleagues and I uh, deciphered the genetic code, and for that, uh, I was awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine. And after, actually, before the uh, uh, that, um, even after after the code was uh, was deciphered, um, it was too easy. Uh, to, I mean, we had wonderful projects going, but uh, it was like um, I could do it with one hand tied behind my back, I felt. And I really wanted to explore and I wanted a challenge. And so uh, I went into neurobiology. I changed fields totally uh, and went into neurobiology. At the time, um, uh, I about a year before that, um, somebody had grown uh, muscle cells in culture, and they stayed differentiated. Up to that time, th- this is a clonal line of of, uh, uh, of muscle cells. Before that time, people thought that, that if you take uh, a single cell and derive a population of cells from this uh, to, to make a clonal cell line, that uh, the cells would, would de-differentiate in, in culture and that you couldn't grow differentiated cells in culture. This was the first time it had been done for muscle cells. So I decided to um, to try to to uh, get clonal lines of of uh, a tumor of neurons, neuroblastoma cells, to uh, uh, establish them in culture He uses simple model systems for studying um, uh, problems in neurobiology. And my real objective was to to get s- cells that express neural properties sufficiently so they could form synapses. And so we could use this model system to study various uh, uh, properties of synapse formation and communication between cells. And eventually uh, we found five cell lines that would form synapses with striated muscle cells. Uh, and uh, And we used these for many... Different purposes. We found that the that the um, um, synapse formation was regulated, and neural properties expression of neural properties was regulated, and that we could shift cells to a differentiated state and innervate hundred percent of the muscle cells. And we used the, these uh, systems for for different things. One one line we found had many opiate receptors covered with opiate receptors, actually. And so we wondered if we could study the, the mechanism of addiction or, or dependence upon opiates. Uh, uh, and we found we could. We found a molecular basis for, for uh, opiate dependence, uh, withdrawal, and tolerance uh, using these cells as a model system. Um, Roger Sperry in uh, the early 60s um, proposed a really interesting hypothesis that uh, he said that that every cell in the retina, uh, in a sheet of cells in the retina, could be given a unique address with uh, two gradients of uh, uh, molecules at right angles to one another. And that would label each cell um, uh, uniquely so that it could be given an address. And I thought of a way of testing this uh, using monoclonal antibodies, that is, cell lines that make antibodies. Each cell line makes a different species of antibody, different kind of antibody. So we immunized, uh, uh, we used as, as, as the immunogen um, uh, chick embryo retina, different portions of chick embryo retina, and looked for uh, an antigen, a molecule in retina that was uh, non-uniformly distributed. In retina, and wonder of wonders, we found one that uh, was distributed in uh, a dorsal large dorsal-ventral gradient in uh, in retina that defined actually the the dorsal-ventral axis of the uh, of the retina. We purified it. We found that it was a protein, a membrane protein. I tried to clone DNA uh, uh, corresponding to it, but failed. And because of this, I went into and because we needed a genetic um, handle uh, for it, uh, we started to work with uh, Drosophila. And, um, and we looked for uh, new Drosophila homeobox genes. Homeobox genes are members of a family of genes that encode proteins that, um, um, that regulate other genes. They're DNA binding proteins. And we were lucky enough to find four new homeobox genes and one of them uh, we found uh, uh, later uh, initiates the uh, neural pathway of development in part of the central nervous system Drosophila, And so this uh, provided a means of studying uh, uh,
1: the initiation of neural development and the strategy of initiating neural development. Maybe I could ask you something. It seems to me that a motif that in informs a lot of the work that you've done is this is the idea of a code, the idea that there's a genetic code. First there's a genetic code for proteins, well then there's in a sense Sperry's work says right. there's a genetic code for important features of the nervous system.
0: Well I mean there are only two systems in biology that uh, process information and uh, I mean the, the genetic and the neural and so that was basically the the unifying concept between the switch from, uh, from the code to, um, to the I. I mean, I didn't go in looking for, a, for any kind of a code, although I think that um, axon pathfinding and so forth, obviously, um, uh, the, the axons detect molecules on the surface of the cells that they're crawling over that, that they're adhering to. And that, uh, that, that these are positional molecules that uh, convey information about uh, where to go and how to find the right kind of synaptic partner. I don't think of it as particularly as a code, although Bill Dreyer, uh calls it the area uh, hypo- area code hypothesis, like like a telephone
1: uh, number. Right. With but there are two there are two major events you say in biology. One is the genetic code, the code that leads to the expression of proteins and the differentiation of cells. And then there's a second kind of information processing event where synapses become active yes. and process information. So there's two major yes. kinds of information processing event. I mean this is the nature-nurture debate, which is classic really in biology, which is mm-hmm. what's what's encoded in the genes and what and, and what is regulated by Sensory information that comes comes into animals from the outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. The, those issues still remain major issues. They in, do in neuroscience and in and in clinical medicine. Actions. Actually, nobody
0: understands really how um, neurons select uh, appropriate synaptic partners to form to form appropriate synapses uh, compared to inappropriate synapses, uh, and um, whether there is, in fact, a, uh, a specific—I mean, there have to be specific molecules uh, that that are involved that that right. um, uh, that tell um, a, a neuron uh, when it's at the right place. But in some cases, it's a process of selection. Maybe like I could
1: ask you a simple question: Why did you get interested in the first place in working on the genetic code? What What was the motivation when you first started thinking about the motive? The motivation for that was. Um, I,
0: I had just finished my, my, uh, uh, my PhD as a biochemist. I came here as a postdoctoral fellow in biochemistry. So um, I was very much interested at the time in molecular biology. I mean, molecular biology and the work that uh, Minot and Jacob uh, were doing in the in Pasteur Institute uh, in Paris was on uh, how uh, beta-galactosidase the gene is uh, the expression of this gene is regulated. These are g- genetic experiments in uh, E. coli, um, were the most exciting things that were going on in science, I thought, at the time. Yes. And they, they were incredibly beautiful experiments, uh, sophisticated genetic experiments to try to to understand uh, uh, the nature of gene regulation. and And so my initial idea was to try to get a cell-free protein synthesizing system going sufficient so that I could synthesize an inducible enzyme in, uh, in, a, in a cell-free extract, and, uh, and then study mechanisms of regulation at the, at the molecular level. And to do this, at the time, there was no such thing as messenger RNA. It was only ribosomal RNA and transfer RNA had just been discovered. Um, adapter uh, rna i thought that messenger rna must exist uh, i wasn't sure whether whether dna per se coded for was was the code for proteins the information in dna or whether there was an uh, an rna intermediary uh, i i was pretty sure that there was an rna intermediary that the information flowed from dna why to RNA. Sh- why did you think there was an rna well you know there was no evidence of any kind at that time right. for, for messenger RNA. Yeah. But I just assumed that, that messenger RNA existed. And I assumed that it must exist. And I thought that, that one place that, that must have low levels of messenger RNA would be ribosomal RNA. Because ribosomes are particles uh, that, are, that protein is synthesized on ribosomes. And you knew that? And, and I knew that. Then that was clearly established. That there was amino acid incorporation on ribosomes, right? And so I thought that that there must part part of the RNA. I thought may uh, be uh, RNA that encodes um, uh, protein. It's the template for protein.
1: And were you were you amongst yeah. the first people to make a cell-free system for protein synthesis? No,
0: no. Um, uh, uh and uh, Phil Siekowitz, um and and his colleagues, uh, Zametnik's colleagues, had uh, done had for years had had um, uh, studied radioactive amino acid incorporation into protein. They got very low levels of incorporation into protein uh, in a cell-free system. But um, um, there was a paper that appeared by uh, Lamborg and and uh, Zamyk, um on a, a system for E. coli, for protein synthesis in E. coli that had a little bit higher activity than the mammalian systems that had been used. And uh, I thought that was very exciting and that was my starting point for the cell-free uh, system. But you focused so, very quickly
1: on the question of
0: code, did you? No, the first, the first thing I tried to do was to ask the question, does messenger RNA exist? Is protein encoded by DNA or by RNA? And so I looked for a fraction of DNA or RNA that would stimulate amino acid incorporation into protein. And uh, I looked, um, used penicillinase, uh, which uh, Pollock in England had used. It was a a second inducible enzyme system like beta-galactosidase. Very few people uh, were working on it, Uh, but it was a very small protein and the protein lacked cysteine. So I thought that if, if I, Simply added all amino acids except cysteine. Maybe I could shut off uh, amino acid synthesis, protein synthesis, other than than penicillinase, and could get penicillinase um, synthesis. That was my starting point. Did you succeed in that in that experiment? Well, what we what we did, I mean, what I started to do was to prepare RNA and DNA fractions, add it to cell free extracts, and look first for protein synthesis, for enzyme activity, and then for amino acid incorporation, a more sensitive assay. And almost um, um, after, after about a year and a half working on this uh, uh, problem, I thought it would take me two years to get things really going. I thought that the field of proteins, the field of protein synthesis was, was moving so fast, I thought, that in two years, protein synthesis could be solved. By that time, I'll have the system set up. I, I had never worked in this field before, and so I was completely ignorant about. Uh, I thought it would take me two years to uh, to learn the, to learn the literature, to uh, set up the systems, to get things going. By that time, somebody else would solve protein synthesis, yeah. and then I'd be set to study regulation. But but we soon found that RNA stimulated amino acid incorporation to protein. This was the first. Evidence, real evidence that we had that
1: um, there was messenger RNA existed. Where did you and, get this RNA from? Was this a synthetic RNA? Now, no, or was no, it still this was ribosomal, ribosomal s- RNA, right? And uh, which actually, was contaminated with message? Was it? Is that- contaminated with message? Yeah. That's what I thought it would be. I mean, yes, we,
0: right. Beyond, and as a matter of fact, we, we fractionated the RNA and found that only a portion of it was was active as a template for protein synthesis. So anyway, um, once we found Ribosomal RNA uh, was active. I tried viral RNA. I tried every RNA we could get our hands on yes. to see to look to see what the activity was. And tobacco mosaic virus RNA was just hot as blazes. I mean, with with uh, ribosomal RNA we got 35 counts above background, right. and by manipulating the system and studying, we were able to increase that to maybe 150 counts, 200 counts. Right. But with viral RNA, we got thousands of counts going into protein above background. And it was really exciting. Yes. So then we tried, uh, we got synthetic polynucleotides and looked to see if we would form a protein consisting only of one amino acid, um, a kind of amino acid, and made 20 different mixtures of of amino acids, each lacking a different uh, amino acid, put a different radioactive amino acid in that and look for incorporation. And polyU u um, was amazing, stimulated incorporation of phenylalanine of all the 20 amino acids, only a phen- phenylalanine into protein. And that was like 50,000 counts above background. It was it was really um, staggering. Uh, and so that's once we had that, that was clearly the first
1: um, a series of use was clearly the first. Uh, and were you synthesizing the, 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 the RNA as well at this yes, point? You yes, were, we had you were had doing the chemistry to make the RNAs. Well, that.
0: well. initially, um, Leon Heppel was, you know, at that time there were maybe a dozen people in, uh, uh, in the world who were really good uh, nucleic acid biochemists. Leon Heppel was really an outstanding nucleic acid uh, uh, biochemist here at the NIH, and, uh, and so he had many of these things. Actually the first RNA we got from Dan Bradley, the first poly-U we got from Dan Bradley who was a physical chemist who was studying the properties of this, but they were synthesized using, uh, uh, synthesis was catalyzed by polynucleotide phosphorylase, an enzyme that had been discovered uh, by uh, uh, Severo Ochoa and Gr- Marianne Grunberg manago a little while before. And with using this enzyme, you could you could synthesize randomly ordered polynucleotides, and so this is we've we synthesized randomly ordered polynucleotides of all kinds to find the uh, 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 the base compositions of codons. And later, we found a, a method, a very simple method of of uh, finding uh, of determining the sequences of uh, of codons.
1: So did you did you did you become when when you understood that you were going to be able to solve the sequence relationship between the RNA and the amino acid sequence, was there then a, a period which was short or long when took when the actual years. code itself was it worked took, out?
0: It took it took five or six years of intense work. Intense work by, I guess in our group there was never more than uh, maybe nine people uh, working at one time, but a total of like twenty people uh, all in all. Uh, over this period of time, uh, worked on this problem, and so it was very much a group project, and uh, we worked flat out as hard as we could. Uh, it was a wonderful, a wonderful time. I mean, to have a problem like that is
1: uh, uh, is exciting. It was a recognized problem, so once you had, once you had the a start, it must have been it must have been very exciting because often I think in science problems are not recognized, and so. So people feel rather isolated when they 're actually solving the problem. This was a
0: defined yes. a, a highly defined problem. Um, it took It took a lot of work to make the the oligonucleotides to make the triplets. We found that the shortest message could be was three bases, uh, three nucleotide residues, a trinucleotide, but they 'd never been made before they 'd never been isolated <clears throat> and so um, we had to synthesize. Uh, um 64 trinucleotides and then test them to to determine the specificity of these
1: so so i mean it's listening to you talk it seems it seems uh, in some ways that it was fortunate that you were able actually to get synthetic rnas to promote amino acids incorporation yes were there was it inefficient even though say, poly-U was efficient relative to other RNAs? Was oh, the other, the other poly nucleotides were very efficient also.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, the ones that had no structure were very efficient. Um, we showed that the double-stranded was, RNA was inactive and that uh, um, GG interactions between uh, the high content of G um, uh, destroyed the activity of the template because of um, base pairing between G residues. Um, right. And, but, it we went through it twice. Well, first with synthetic polynucleotides, and with
1: triplets. And do you think so? Do you think then that in that period, when, at the end of it, when you when you realized, in a sense, that you had done what you wanted to do in that in that area, do you? What was that transition like for you personally? I mean, did you? I t- I t- was I t- it a letdown, or were you oh excited no. to oh, move no. forward? Oh no! I was excited
0: to move to move forward because because I, we were under a lot of pressure to, to get the work out. Because when we first uh, published this, uh, Severo Ochoa, who is one of the foremost biochemists in the world, um, jumped on the problem. Yes. And, uh, and so we were, we were, I was faced with competition, with tremendous like, competition, with an extremely experienced biochemist. Extremely experienced in making RNA, making synthetic polynucleotides, because he and Mary Anne Grinberg-Minago had discovered um, um, uh, the uh, method of making synthetic RNA. Um, I later learned that um, the reason that, that he jumped, I didn't know this until way after the, after this was done, is that um, somebody from France, um, Mirko Beljansky, came to his lab um, as uh, on a sabbatical, and he put him. Uh, he asked him to, to look at the uh, template activity of poly A uh, synthetic RNA, which codes for polylysine. And he Mirko worked for a year on this and was unable to find that um, uh, poly A was active as a template. The reason he was unable to find it is that that polylysine is soluble in trichloroacetic acid so he, he would not precipitate, precipitate couldn't precipitate yeah. he would have found it otherwise and yeah. so of course of course uh, uh Severo Ochoa jumped on the pro. I mean he independently had the
1: idea and uh, he was also he was also very well known and and and, oh, yeah. and received many honors himself oh he was president of the uh uh,
0: the International Biochemical Union, and a Nobel Prize winner. That's right. Uh, which he won for the uh, polynucleotide phosphorylase. And and he was at Rockefeller, was he? Where was he? He was at NYU. Ah, oh, yeah. When I, I had never met him, and when he first jumped on the problem, I thought, well, it's, you know, I would, uh, this competition, I was I was a little afraid, I was uh, askance at competition. Uh, I, a little afraid that I'd be swamped because I was working with one person at the time, uh, with Heinrich Mattai. And um, and so when I went to New York one time to give a talk, I called him up, introduced myself, and uh, he invited me to come down to have tea, introduced me to all of the members of his department. I thought maybe we could divide up the problem and help one another um, because it seems like a much more civilized thing to do. To uh, be cooperative uh, rather than to be competitive, but uh, that was impossible. I mean, it was impossible to divide it up. And I discovered, um, yes. to my horror, that I like to compete. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I, it stimulates you. Yes. And but after competing for five years uh, and getting writing a paper every six weeks and um, uh, you know you, it takes a lot out of you and you want to read and think and and put things back in uh, and so at the end of this time i w- was relieved to uh, switch fields i mean i did it it was one of the happiest times of my life
1: and it was recognized uh, at that point wasn't it but i mean i think a lot of co- your colleagues here at NIH knew the importance of your work so you were quite strongly supported here very that? So, very
0: strongly supported yes. and some people um um Helped uh, Maxine Singer and and uh, Bob um, uh, really really uh, were major major help and having Heppel here uh, Heppel was a tremendous help he gave us um, oligonucleotides you know Heppel I don't know if you've ever met Leon Heppel no nah. it's a wonderful person very like a bird like person always working at the bench and I never wanted to interrupt him. You know I would, uh-huh. if, I, if I needed something, I would open the door and just stand there and he'd be right. working and I'd just wait until he came to a stopping place and then I'd ask him something and then leave immediately because I didn't want to interfere
1: with his work. But uh, he was a big help. And, when, and in the transition, did they, did your colleagues here understand the transition and that now that you were going to move on, did they, did they, did you feel they that... They thought I was su- crazy. Yes, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. now that was a, another yeah. kind of individual move for you.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I,
1: I think it always is actually I, for a scientist. I gave who's...
0: all of the postdoctoral fellows I was working with to uh, Tom Kasky, who was a terrific guy in the lab, and 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 I mean they were interested in protein synthesis, and and there were many many things to do with protein synthesis, uh, and and I started by myself uh, working in neurobiology, but uh, but it was the most wonderful sense of freedom to simply read. And although I must say that the experiments, the level of, the the intellectual level of experiments in molecular biology is so much higher than than the, uh, I mean, some of the papers that I read in in neurobiology, uh, in the nervous system, uh, neurochemistry, were
1: so horrible. I mean, technically they were bad. Right. And
0: it felt like I was walking through swamps.
1: But isn't that true, I think, in any field? I mean, there must have been a period, I think, when molecular biology was also a very complex subject and people hadn't really focused in on the main issues. And, and for example, biochemists, mm-hmm. I understand, thought in the early part of molecular biology that molecular biologists weren't, essentially weren't a competent collection of people, and that they, <laughs> they couldn't think straight, and they that's, couldn't do experiments properly. And I think that's, that's also true, true in neuroscience, that the early phase of molecular neuroscience, yeah. there were p- there were parts of the discipline that were well developed. I mean, neurochemistry had some areas. Neurotransmitter chemistry was very well developed, and and but many of the important problems were poorly phrased, really experimentally. Yes, yes absolutely. So, so, who influenced you in that period, in when you were making the transition? There was nobody. I thought of
0: well, maybe I should go someplace, but there was nobody really that. Um, uh, that that I, I I could go to, so I I, I uh, became friends and colleagues and and collaborated with Phil Nelson, Philip right. Nelson here at the NIH, superb neurophysiologist, and uh, he taught me the language of neurophysiology. I taught him molecular biology, and it was a wonderful exchange for both of us. Yes. I mean, we both learned. It was very productive because we had all of these neuroblastoma cell lines which he could use then to, uh, to study um, the electrophysiologic Carlitz, uh, 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 We found it that the uh, ion channels were inducible and uh, it was really productive and, and um, I think, I think it, it benefited both of us uh, very much. And he taught me a lot. So, uh, and then I read. I just read everything I could
1: lay my hands on basically. When you look at but neuroscience, do you feel now that there's that the field has field reached is, a point where field it's field is superb? Now. It's nowadays field is superb. I think
0: with young people who are doing really good things and with good systems. Um, uh, Corey Goodman, for example, uh, doing superb work on Drosophila, on pathfinding and and uh, um, trying to understand synaptogenesis and and. And how neurons find the, the appropriate target uh, cells to innervate, and there are many other people also who are doing, I think, extremely good work. These people didn't exist at the, at the time I went into it. Right. So, let me go but, ahead. But let me let me let me say a few things about, um, you know, Drosophila is a wonderful is a wonderful system for neurobiology yeah. because it has uh, almost a century of. Uh, Genetic exploration has been done using fruit flies as the uh, model system. the uh, um, the The life cycle is is or uh, uh, from egg to uh, to adult is is about ten days, and so you can do genetic experiments. Uh, and even though there's an enormous amount that's not known about the development of the nervous system, we do know the basic strategy now of how parts of the central nervous system of Drosophila are formed. And it's really interesting. Rogersbury's initial insight of having gradients at right angles to one another, of gradients of molecules, concentration gradients of molecules, it's absolutely true. Because um, in the embryo, Drosophila embryo, in the anterior portion of the cell, there's a gradient of bicoid, homeobox protein, a gene regulator, nanos in the posterior. That, and these proteins diffuse um, from anterior to posterior or vice versa. And there's a concentration gradient in nuclei of dorsal, the highest concentration in the ventral portion um, of the uh, embryo in the lowest in, in, Towards the dorsal, and so each nucleus, uh, actually the, the embryo, is uh, starts it starts uh, fertilized a single cell through a single nucleus. Nuclei keep dividing until you have a single cell with about five thousand nuclei. Only then cell membranes form and compartmentalize the nuclei. Before the cell membranes formed, these concentration gradients of gene regulators. In uh, at right angles to one another, um, determines, determines the, the fate of nuclei depending upon the position of the nuclei in the embryo. So uh, the, in effect, the embryo is divided up into um, uh, um, a checkerboard sure. of, of, of clusters of cells, and the initial developmental fate of, the cl- of each cluster of cells is dependent upon its position in the, uh, in the embryo. Then there's a selection uh, that takes place to select neuroblasts from, from uh, the neuroepithelium. Actually one of the homeobox genes that we found, NK2, um, initiates neural development in the most uh, medial uh, portion of the, of the embryo next to the ventral midline um uh, And we've been interested in how you form a pattern, uh, a very intricate pattern of, of NK2 expressing uh, uh, neuroectodermal cells and neuroblasts. only some of the cells become neuroblasts. And um, about 52 patches of um, uh, of NK2 expressing cells are formed. What we find is that, um, that NK2 is turned on in the ventral half of the embryo, but it's repressed. It's repressed by different repressors in the mesodermal analaga and the mesectodermal analog on the bottom, on the top, anterior portion, posterior portion, so that each cluster is formed by um, at least four or five different species of, re- of repressors. Um, and so the position of each cluster of, of um, neuroectodermal cells is, is, um, is determined, the time of exp- uh, that, it's, that these cells appear is determined, and the position is, is uh, determined. And from each cluster, a neuroblast then will be selected that, um, that will then
1: undergo division and give rise to a set of neurons. creates the hardware of the nervous system and builds, builds the sort of basic wiring pattern as a consequence of these initial decisions. That's right.
0: So, so, so basically you have a Cartesian coordinates, anterior, posterior, right. ventral, dorsal uh, coordinates that are formed, and I think that, um, that each cell has two kinds of molecular addresses, at least two kinds of molecular addresses. An internal molecular address, which is the complement of gene regulators that it expresses that determines cell type, and an external address, it's so a cell surface molecules that uh, are recognized by other cells, that determine the position of the... Uh, uh, they recognize the position of the cell uh, in order to form appropriate uh, synapses later
1: on in development. It's,
0: it's fantastic. To do, you because-
1: see, do you see development, the development of the nervous system now, as being reaching a stage where it's powerful enough to manipulate the system and give us a lot of insight, not only into the original signals that control how it's built, but Also, to the signals that are influencing that later stage that you were talking about where information is processed through synapses. I mean, can you is that part of your imagination now? Well, I would love to know,
0: I would really like to know the synaptic circuits. I mean, in nematodes, we know the synaptic circuits and, and all uh, cells in the nervous system. We also know the genome, the whole uh, genome of, of the nematode now, but. Um, that information is not available in uh, in I, w- I I think the major problems that has to be has to be worked out is uh, how cells find the right synaptic targets, how they make synapses and make form-appropriate synaptic circuits, and how uh, what the molecular basis of memory is.
1: Do you think do you think there's going to be simple universal rules that are still to be discovered, rather like the genetic code, or do you think no, it's...? I think so. Yes, I think
0: so. Absolutely.
1: I think um, from what we know now, molecules
0: that are active in, uh, uh, as attractants or repellents for pathfinding, axon pathfinding, in, in Drosophila are also active in, uh, mammalian, in mammalian systems, mammals. So um, insights from Drosophila certainly, I think, Many of them will be translated into uh, uh, mechanisms that are used in higher organisms, surely. But I don't know, you know, about a a code. Uh, We still don't know how cells recognize one another uh, to form appropriate synaptic partner cells. Interestingly, like muscle cells in Drosophila, when the axons crawl in, the muscle cell reaches out and palpates the incoming the incoming axons, and when the appropriate one is fa- is 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 touched, pulls it in, and, and a synapse is
1: formed. So it must be an adhesive interaction of some kind. Yes, and and when when you when you sort of look look in a in a in a fairly um, relaxed way out, out to the future, I mean, what do you see? What do you see as the future of biology? I mean, do you see do you the see these? Biology? Yeah, I think,
0: I think that that uh, you're working on part of the future of biology.
1: Uh, Why don't you tell us something about stem cells? Well, I could tie it in quite nicely with some of the things that you've been describing. I mean, when, when, um, when you talk about Sperry, I think Roger Sperry was a very, very influential figure and more influential, it seems, almost as the years go by. And that his recognition that chemistry was going to be a crucial part of understanding the nervous system, I think, was not widely recognized. And and when he, even when he won the Nobel Prize, he won it for work, which was really, he was cited for work, which was work, which was not the work really on neurochemistry, but was work on circuitry, where he did in, in incredibly important work. And um, his work strongly influenced me and I think one sees often in science, I mean, when you made a transition from molecular biology, bacterial genetics, and the fundamentals of molecular biology into neurobiology, so too did others. And um, like like you, I was very influenced by Sperry and by a particular paper which was published in PNAS in the early 60s. And, and, and after a period being interested in 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 a, in the very general rules, chemical rules, the existence essentially of this chemistry that Sperry had predicted, I became very interested in the idea of stem cells, and the and that's an idea which just recently has become very popular. But in the initial part of working on them, was very essentially unpopular. Not really so much unpopular as not understood. And and now as as we move. Forward from this point, it's, it's very clear that, that, that stem cells are, are, are real things, that cells have extraordinary properties, and that it relates a little bit to the work that you were describing in Drosophila, where, where cells become specified in different positions in, in, in the developing a fly to occupy different fates. In the nervous system of mammals and almost certainly in flies also these, these cells in the early nervous system share properties. They share many properties. And in mammals, we know now how to get them out and grow them in the lab. And, and as we look at their properties in more detail it, and we learn about them. How, we, did, you, how did you isolate them? Initially, initially. initially, it was very difficult to isolate them because initially we didn't know the parallels with the story you told are interesting because we didn't know how to do it. So we had to have a very strong idea that we wanted to do it. And we, we initially, what we initially did was we, we generated a whole lot of antibodies which recognized the different cell types of the early nervous system. And then showed by looking in the animal itself, as scientists say, in vivo, that one of these antibodies recognized a cell type that must be the precursor to neurons. And we did that really by a, by a method which involved counting all the cells during development of the nervous system and proving mathematically that this cell population must give rise to neurons. And with, when we were confident of that, then we worked out how to grow that cell population in, in the lab and um, take it out of the animal, out of the in vivo situation, into an in vitro controlled experimental situation. It's rather Parallel to your cell-free synthesis of proteins. And so one of the motivations that that drives me forward is the idea that we can actually build brains and dishes. And while I think if you push that idea too far, it becomes ludicrous. As a, as a motivating force to find the basic rules that construct the nervous system, it's a really good, it's a really good idea. It's a really good driving force to set up new experiments. And in fact, one of the um, experiments that we've recently completed is that we, can, we now know how to take these stem cells, which we can get to divide for long periods in culture, and then switch them into the young neuron and, and keep them healthy and happy all the way to the point where they form synapses. And that's a very interesting technology. It's mostly, um, at the moment, highly experimental, but we can see already how it will translate into clinical outcomes. And But my own motivation for doing it is really, is really intellectual. I think it's going to be very interesting to see now what the rules are that control these transitions and how you build groups of neurons with, with active synapses between them. Mm. And the thing that personally gets me most excited is the idea that, almost the abstract idea, that we'll be able to have and control whole dishes full of cells, which are making different kinds of synapses, and look at their information processing in, in almost an abstract way. Hmm. Of course, there is a sense in which that ambition how m- is simply a personal how one. How
0: many kinds of synapses can you, can you form?
1: Well, we anticipate that we'll be able to form all the synapses that, 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 are, that are found in the nervous system, but we know already that we can we can control the formation of the major excitatory and inhibitory synapses in these cells, in ways which parallel the the formation of synapses by normal neurons, so that so these stem cells look as if they make real neurons that that have expected properties when one looks at their synapses. And so, are you collaborating with a um, electrophysiologist? Yes. Well, so oh, I've been very fortunate in ha- having interactions with Menahem Siegel, who's at the Weizmann Institute, hmm. and he spent some time here. And now we have in our own group um, colleagues who are electrophysiologists, and it's a very interesting multidisciplinary team. And um, it's it's exciting. I think. I mean, I think that in terms of what you were describing, you 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 talked about these two phases of the sort of the the, the use of genes to form the basic structures, and. I like to think of the stem cell really as the as the as the device that creates the Big Bang. It creates all the elements. Mm. But the universe it creates is kind of flat. It, it, has, it has interesting features, but it's slow, it's slow. But, but, when, but when neurons are generated out of this early Big Bang, that's in a sense the parallel that I like to think of is that it's like the origin of life. Now you have much more rapid information flux and more complex patterns you ask about different kinds of synapses, and I think, I mean, this is really a sort of romantic idea, but I think one of, the, one of the important rules that I feel was true in the early days of molecular biology is that you have to have a kind of driving force which is essentially intellectual. And there is a sort of romantic component to it. Mm. And um, I think, for example, the group in Paris that, that understood the importance of being able to study the regulation of gene expression Understood that as an intellectual or romantic idea, absolutely, and absolutely. Uh, and that moved them forward, and they had the self-confidence to follow that idea, even when it wasn't clear experimentally how you would do it. Actually, one of the one of the members of that group is a man called Leveque, and and he oh, yes. he was yes, the person, he very famous scientist, and one of the one of the things he said once was, when when he was in his lab was the first lab to to control How the transition from um, the activation of bacterial viruses, bacteriophage, which were latent, and he describes that moment in his lab as being the greatest molecular thrill of his life.
0: He he was he was He he told me one time that um, you have to if you if you discover something you have to name it. If it doesn't have a name, it doesn't exist. Right. So a a very very um, uh, very
1: interesting individual so my 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 sort of romance at the moment i mean if, or my intellectual drive is really to understand the relationship between these two important events the big bang when the stem cell generates the components, and the first time when these components, if you like become come alive
0: do you think you can do um,
1: um, replacement of neurons in damaged brains yes we, well it's surprising it looks very promising that application the technology and in In animal systems, we already have very convincing data that we can do that. And I think in the short term, there's going to be um, there's going to be uh, clinical trials which apply these new technologies to Mm. uh, diseases of the nervous system. And my anticipation is that this is all going to happen very quickly. I think that we're going to see a real, a really dramatic switch in biology in the next few years. Comparable, I think, to to the late 50s and 60s, when, when molecular biology just swept everything before it and suddenly became recognized as a, a major new force in biology. I think that's going to happen again now at the level of cells. I am mm. uh, I absolutely believe in the properties of these cells. And I, I do that actually based on... I, I think cells are really the unit of life. Mm. And, that, and it's cells that are selected for. And that... Um, the properties of stem cells are really truly remarkable, and their plasticity is unexpectedly startling. So recent, recent work suggests that within the nervous system that cells can switch from, from to completely new fates if you put them in another part of the brain. Hmm. And it looks as if that kind of flexibility in the differentiation of cells is going to apply throughout animals So I think that in the next few years, do
0: you you think that they'll
1: form appropriate synapses?
0: Yes. Well, so if you if you implant um, um, the progeny of stem cells or stem cells in the brain, let's say of Alzheimer's disease patients or or uh,
1: Parkinsonian uh, uh, patients, I think it's one of the challenges that we face, and I think that the that solving. Providing a detailed answer to that question, I think is going to be extraordinarily interesting. I think it's going to be answering that question that takes molecular biology into the realms of psychology and psychophysics in a very powerful way. I mean, consider what what we're looking at here in this conversation. I mean, we're looking at a span of biology, which takes us from a time when we didn't know the fundamental rules about how cells work. And how information flows through cells to a point where we're discussing the idea that there will be people who have parkinson's disease who are grafted with highly defined populations of cells and that one of the things that we will ask these people i mean we will actually ask them to tell us about their about their abilities and and what they can do now and what they cannot do and that when we ask them that question we will essentially be answering the problem which is how what how does it matter what these cells do and I think I think that's extraordinary you know Jack Mono made this very famous statement in in molecular biology that um, what is true for the elephant is true for E. coli and for a long time that drove molecular biology and the simplification of of, uh, of questions down to the level of phage and bacteria. But then Mono and others lifted their sights, you amongst them. And I think that now we're in a period where, in fact, it's Mono's famous aphorisms not true. It's not that it's not true. But in fact, if you want to know specific things about elephants, there are things that you cannot ask in E. coli. And uh, and I think that that now we are getting to a point where we can ask actually people questions about the molecular biology of cells and synapse formation, which, which I think would make Mono extraordinarily interested. I mean, he was driven mm. as an intellectual, I think, by many, of this, um, by many of these questions. He was driven intellectually to answer the questions and simplified the problem because he felt these issues had to be resolved first. And um, now, I anticipate this is all going to happen very fast, actually, that it, 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 it won't take long mm-hmm. to answer some of the questions. It'll take a long time to have a really detailed understanding. But, but to establish the paradigm of working in this way, I think is going to happen very quickly.
0: You know, there have been some wonderful advances in uh, neurobiology, that, a lot of advances, but one, one of the most interesting is uh, uh, the work on the olf- uh, olfactory system, wow. um, how we smell. And Richard Axel and his colleagues and, and others um, have uh, discovered uh, that in the mammalian genome in the mouse genome, there are th- about a thousand genes for olfactory receptors. And uh, the related these genes encode uh, related proteins. the serpentine receptors that, that go in and out of the membrane uh, seven times, and uh, that um, perceive um, uh, molecules uh, and this is uh, um, that, that, that one can um, smell that one can, can right. smell the the the, <clears throat> the really remarkable thing about it and is is that um, these neurons are generated in the in the olfactory epithelium and um, they seem to be uh, genes are turned on genes are turned on randomly in a cell one neuron expresses one olfactory receptor uh, gene and the rest of the genes the other 999 genes are turned off and the in the the other um, chromosome the chromosome pair uh, that the gene is right. turned off as well. Allelic exclusion. So, allelic exclusion so there has to be a mechanism yeah. for when you turn on one of this right. set of genes you turn off all the other genes right. uh, and that mechanism is unknown right now. Then the neurons, all neurons that express receptor type A, synapse in the same place yes. in the olfactory bulb in the brain, and all neurons that express olfactory uh, uh, receptor B synapse in another separate place. So there are about nine hundred um, glomeruli um, in in the brain that that. Um, that are formed so there's a topographic map that's formed in the olfactory bulb these neurons are distributed olfactory neurons are distributed rather randomly uh, in the olfactory epithelium but they sort out and uh, and nowhere to synapse and he's recently he and his colleagues have recently shown that the olfactory receptors uh, have an instructive role they're involved in part of the uh, sensing the proper place to go. Nobody truly understands right now how the neurons can find their way to the right place to make this map yes. of, of,
1: uh, of cells. So there's it's, going to be lots of sort of examples like that, don't you think, of really sort of remarkable phenomena. Yes. So, so in this case, uh, 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 a whole group of receptors which sense the whole, all of the chemical environment, the volatile chem- chemical environment. And it seems, you were talking about Drosophila earlier, and I, I, I meant to introduce his name at that point, but it seems to me that Seymour Benzer's lab, oh, working on flies, superb, has contributed yeah. repeatedly stunning That's, observations using genetics.
0: He's one of the best scientists in the world. I mean, there's no, no question about that. Right. Uh, no, so. He's done superb work. He, he was, I think, one of the first people that, that I know, molecular biologists, to go into neurobiology, yes. and you've done
1: beautiful work in neurobiology. Well, there are a number of remarkable stories there, but one of them is the is the identification of genes that regulate an animal's sense of time, and, they're, they're, and yes. so there's a gene called per for periodicity, it controls period, periodic behaviors. Singing, when flies sing to each other, it controls the, the frequency with which the flies mm. sing, but it, it's a fundamental part of biology obtained first our insight into it obtained first from work in Drosophila, using Drosophila genetics. Yes. I think it's going to be extraordinary this p- next period. I sometimes wonder whether, in fact, most of biology is now going to be done in the nervous system. That, that, that this sort the of transition that... 75%
0: you know, of all the genes that are expressed in, in the mammal are expressed in the nervous system.
1: Right. Allelic exclusion probably exists in other tissues. Think so? Well, isn't and it what the do case you think? in the immunology? I think that in... That, that, well, that, definitely. Yes. Right. What What do you think the mechanism of uh,
0: of uh, the the allelic exclusion is in uh, mm-hmm. in the olfactory receptor? Um, uh,
1: I mean, it could be recombination. It uh, could be. I mean, it could be. It, or it could simply be timing. It could just be frequency. If you have an event which is relatively infrequent, mm-hmm. but in fact it it happens rather rarely, but And so so it could be a very simple device, or it could be very complex. At any rate, Marshall, this is very nice talking to you like this. Well, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it, too. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.